Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. And we're here with your midweek episode. Um, this is, it's really, we part the noise. If there's a little bit of ambient noise, we've got all the windows open at the St. Paul studio. And this is our last day here until we move everything out. Yes. Our last day recording. Last we day recording. Say. Yeah. Well, and I'm not going to be here until we move out. That's it. I'm never coming back. <laughs> Good point. This is it. This is it for me. Yeah. So it is very hot out. It's officially summer here in Minnesota and we have the windows open because there's no air conditioning at the studio which is one of the reasons we're moving. <laughs> and with all the windows, it is, it's a million degrees in here. Yes. And I did not drive the 911 because I just was like, it's too hot. And then I'm I suppose have to you don't have air conditioning. Studio. I don't care about that, but I didn't want to be hot and then get into the hot studio and record. So Yeah, I, I didn't even have the air on in my car on the way over. I did. It was that set at 60, just blasting in my, really? in my face. Oh, yeah. I, I feel like you have a bigger problem with heat than I do. <laughs> yeah, well, you can only get so naked. <laughs> when it's cold, you can put a jacket on when it's... I guess so. All right, well, let's get warm. right to it. We've got a, uh, we've got this a little bit of... This is a history quick shift yeah, as let's we've do come it. to know them. So I'm excited for this, Chris. You don't know the story. That's and right. You're going to like this one. This one's right up your alley. Okay. So the year is 1906. Right, a 1906. Young, what was going on? Was, who was president in 1906? Was it Teddy Roosevelt? I don't know, but we're not in our country right now. Okay, all right. Well, so it doesn't matter. Okay. So 1906, a young saddle master, Wilhelm Reuter. Uh, I'm sorry. I want to be called something master. Yes. <laughs> you know, I want to be the drive master or the, the drive master. master or the, the photo master. I, I can be, be considered the webmaster at my day job. You could. That's cool. This little nerdy, but no though. one's used that term since 1984. <laughs> you should get a business card just as webmaster. That would be pretty great. Anyway, yeah. sorry, saddlemaster. So, young saddlemaster in 1906. His name is Wilhelm Reuter, founder of no, he founded the Stuttgarter Karosserie und Radfabrik. Okay, which was producing complete horse carriages. However, this was a time when the work of coach builders overlapped with producing the first bodies for these newfangled motor vehicles that were terrorizing all the streets around there. Terrorizing. Well, they were, <laughs> as you can imagine, like in 1906, these yeah. were kind of the newfangled thing. Yeah, well, we do know that the one guy died running over a dog from our last one of our That's last right, ones, he avoided so. the dog. Yeah. So, well, in fact, Wilhelm, the carriage coach building was just a means to keep the business open because his true passion was actually for these motor vehicles. Okay. And really, I mean, that was at a time when many people considered them maybe just a fad or kind of a novelty. So... It seemed that fate, luck, whatever you may call it, was actually on Wilhelm's side because just down the street was a little company by the name of Daimler Motor Geschalft. So Daimler, a.k.a. Daimler-Benz, yep. which we now know is the longest standing car manufacturer in the world, would build the engine and basic chassis of cars. And as a customer of Daimler, you'd go in there and you'd order your car from Daimler, and then you'd go out and find a separate so coach what are the, what builder. Are these, what do these things cost as you, as you piece I, them together? Do we know? I like, don't have that data. It'd be interesting to find out in today's dollars what, I mean, it had to be. It like had to be super expensive. Crazy, crazy money. You know, I mean, it's, it's almost on par with like maybe getting like building like an experimental aircraft these days or something like that, where you put it together, get a separate engine and build it in your own hangar. Right. I mean, it's got to be that level of wealth that was needed. Probably. Yeah. So you'd go to Daimler, they'd build a chassis engine, and then you'd go over to another coach builder and have your custom body created by the likes of Wilhelm here with his coach building company. And so as it turned out, uh, there was more car makers on the rise as well. So Wilhelm Reuter's company was a huge success and over the years became one of the most renowned car body suppliers in Europe. 
In fact, many innovations came from this writer. He was the first to patent a convertible car top, as well as the first standardized car body instead of just these one-off hand Right. panels. Or they're all different every single exactly. time. Exactly. So Wilhelm built car bodies for virtually all the German car manufacturers of the time, including Daimler-Benz, BMW, Opel, and even a small company across the pond called Cadillac. Yeah, I don't right. know how he got that contract as yeah, well that must have been like, Germany. Uh, well, he didn't take the Titanic on his way over there, that's yeah, for sure. Yeah, hopefully not. <laughs> so yet the most important opportunity for young Wilhelm, actually, I don't know if he was young. I don't think he was at the time. Uh, it was yet to come. You see, he had a friend who started a small new engineering firm. This man's name was Ferdinand Porsche. All right. So in 1932, Ferdinand Porsche commissioned a prototype for a Wanderer Streamliner from Wilhelm's company. And he was so impressed by the work that Wilhelm did that the two companies began working together regularly, and they had a long-lasting relationship. Now, being a historical story... How old was in Germany, uh, Ferry at this time? What was the... I'll, he had just started the company... Well, here, I'll, I'll get into it, because okay. being in Germany, talking to Porsche back in the day, you can't really avoid talking about World War II. Right. So in 1935, however old Ferdinand Porsche was at the time, he, as you may know, was tasked with creating the people's car for the Nazis. Right. And this was going to be the Volkswagen Type 1 Beetle. And Wilhelm was actually the man responsible for much of the coachwork design on the Beetle. So that was kind of his most uh, prolific claim to fame, right. was that car. So ha fast forward to after the war, we, which we'll do a big fast forward there because a lot okay. happened in that span. But yeah. for the sake of this story, uh, we'll fast forward to 1949, and Ferdinand Porsche is back developing this idea of a completely new sports car. So Porsche relied on Wilhelm Stuttgarter Kartischerie Reuter, that coach building company, yep. to build 500 cars. And the project number for this was 356. Yep. So the first of the now infamous Porsche 356s was delivered on April 4th, 1950. After that, Reuter went on to produce 78,000 Porsche vehicles up through 1963. And it was really hard to get those cars into America, too. They weren't, like, it was not like a thing where they could, you could just, there was no Porsche dealerships. There was nothing like right. that. So it was like this... Uh, Sorry, I don't want to just interject like a sidebar, but there was a, I can't remember the name. It was this Jewish jeweler. We really wish I could remember his name, but he started importing um, 356s okay. back in the day and started selling them. And he was like an art collector and like this really eccentric dude. And uh, he started... Oh, you look like you were about to say something. No, I'm thinking also because I was going to say, and then was the 550 Spider after the 356 or prior? Uh, it was after. 50, it's 50s. So. Yeah, because I'm um, thinking, because James Dean died of course in his 550 spider which was imported right around that time and i wonder if he also i mean it's california that's probably where they were based the importer no he was actually on the east coast he was okay um i wish i could find i don't have the access to the immediate information <laughs> google is not being not come being on wonderful google. to me i can't remember the guy's name uh oh, max hoffman that's right so it was max hoffman max did hoffman. it and uh, he had imported a few other things too and he was um, the rumor was that he was partially responsible for importing the Gullwing, helping get the Gullwing Mercedes. Oh, sure. I think that ended up being not true, but um, he raced raced some stuff, and he was really uh, essential in getting the 550 on like uh, SCCA racing and right. stuff like that. So it was, and it was amazing at the time because those cars were so small and underpowered compared to their American contemporaries, oh, but yeah. they just cleaned up. Yeah, yeah, they were great. So anyway, sorry. Anyways, yeah. So up until 1963, Wilhelm Reuter's company 
was producing 78,000 Porsche vehicles along with Porsche. They did the coach work. And in 1963 is when Porsche took over the Stuttgarter Karrisserie Reuter and officially purchased the company from the Reuter family. But not before. Reuter worked on one more project for them. Concept number 901 would become Porsche's most infamous car ever to be built. However, there was a French company, Peugeot, at the time that had trademarked the naming convention yeah. of three numbers with a zero in the middle. So that's why now we know this car as the 911 or 911. Yeah, they, uh, they released it at the, the Frankfurt Auto Show for the yep. first time. And, uh, yeah, they had that moniker on it or whatever. And then the, yep, the three-letter designation yeah. or three-number designation. Yep, And then Peugeot was like, wait they a minute. They freaked out. What well, the thing is is that Peugeot had lots of numbers at the time, so it was kind of stupid. But, but I don't know how they trademarked the three-number designation with a zero in the middle. But actually, that's why they can't use 901. Yeah, I wrote an article about this, actually. Did you really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Back in the, uh, Not too long ago, but... Yeah, it was interesting that we all, I'll have to find that and read that. Yeah. So that concludes the little known story of Porsche's original coach builder. Or does it? Okay. Because you see, in all these years, Reuter not only designed and produced car bodies, the company had always supplied the interior of the vehicles as well, including the seats. As it turns out, Reuter was a real pioneer in the world of automotive seating, developing seat benches, driver and passenger seats, and looking for more and more comfort for these passengers. Because in the beginning, it's you're basically sitting on like a little rickshaw board. Right, yeah. So, in fact, Reuter took over an English patent for seat tracks in 1938, refined it, and re-advertised it as adjustable seats for motor vehicles. So he's the first one that had like adjustable seating. So after selling off the coach building business to Porsche, Reuter decided to continue building automotive seats. He took the original company name of Reuter Karosserien and shortened it, taking the RE from Reuter and the CARO from Karosserien to make Recaro. Oh, nice. Naturally, the first customer was Porsche. From then on, Recaro built the seats for all Porsche sports cars until 1997. The fame of the brand, Recaro, though, as we know it, really came about from an innovative idea at the time. And it, it seems obvious now looking back, but this innovation was selling automotive seats to the aftermarket. So as a replacement for original seats, Recaro's offered seats that were supportive, safe, ergonomic, and offered these distinct designs and perfect craftsmanship that a lot of the OEMs didn't have or possess. They what year was, what, was this that he kind of started making these seats, do we know? This was 64. Okay. So, in addition to the OEM seats, aftermarket seats, the company has also branched off and offered seats for commercial vehicles and, of course, for race cars. One of my, my seats in my car are, are like the really early, early LS, like the Recaro LS. Before it was yes. called a Recaro LS, it was like there was a commercial for my seats. You're pointing at your computer. No, like your and I'm... I'm it, there's like a 935, like, driving, and then there's, like, a picture of my seat right there, which I, is kind of neat. I had a list of, like, all their seats in here, and I deleted because I know exactly... I can picture the name of your seat because it is the model before the LS, yeah. and I deleted it. So, otherwise, oh, I could have to told go. you. It's some German name. Eh, whatever. <laughs> so... Just hit undo, command Z over and over again. I, and then I'll <laughs> lose the rest of the story. <laughs> so... The racing seats, this was kind of a new venture for them, and they were the first to create kind of these shell-style seats that were introduced in 1967. And they were the first purebred racing shells made of Kevlar, which followed in 1974. How hard was it for you not to tell me what this story was when I told you when I showed you a picture of my seats today that were those hard-shell Recaros that I used to have I was in like, my 911? You're going like, like this. I'm like, hey, check out these seats I used to have. You must have been like, ooh. And as I'm writing the story for <laughs> yeah. this, I know. That's why I was like, you're going to enjoy this one so 
there were actually times when Recaros were the only seats used in racing, just because every race car had a Recaro seat in it. In Europe, I'm assuming. In a Europe, yeah. yeah. In 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 certain racing series is actually more specifically what this said. Sure. Taking I'm taking liberties here, Chris. Well, that's Artistic fine. liberties. Yeah, do it. Simplicity. So the development from racetrack, of course, benefited the road-going seats as well because they were track-proven, and now they have the comfort for daily use. And during the last 55 years, there's been almost no global car manufacturer that has not used Recaro seats at some point in time in at least one of their models. So the list of brands is almost endless, including Aston Martin, Audi, Bentley, BMW, Cadillac, Chevy, Fiat, Ford, Honda, Kia, Lambo, Lotus, Mazda, Mercedes, Mitsubishi, Nissan, Pontiac, Porsche, Toyota, Volkswagen, and many more. You know what makes me angry about this, though? What? Is that they refuse to reissue vintage seats. Why? I'm surprised they don't i wonder if it's something with um compliance with safety regulations so now. update the seat yeah so update design everybody would love that to have like a oh absolutely a brand new recaro ls from recaro would be amazing it would be what's the problem i have no idea we talk we talk about this all the time with my buddies i'm just like really yeah it's just reissue it's, well it's that can go for anything because it's like a thousand dollars to get them read redone yep. to any any standard and you ranted about your your momo italian steering wheel they don't reissue those in the 370 size right, right? What the hell i don't know there, there's a huge market there that they're not tapping into but at any rate now that next time you sit in your recaros or i sit in my recaros in the audi we can know the story behind it and have wilhelm reuter to thank awesome um so i like that that's a good story um, do you want to hear any of my of that article that I that I was talking do about? Do you have it up? I do, and it was never published anywhere. Um, it just kind of sat there. It was, sure. it was something I wrote. It was called the Porsche and the 911 Ethos in America, and so I, I was given this assignment by um, by a magazine. Said, "Hey, this is this is actually the only article that I ever wrote that never got published because they were like, oh, that's not what we were looking for.' No, oh, really. Um, it's actually it's pretty good, but um, I just wanted to go to that uh, Peugeot." Yeah, just the part about the Peugeot. In May of 1964, Porsche finished up the 904 work, and the first of the 901s were put together at Zuffenhausen. The 901 quickly became the 911 in name. Peugeot objected to the use of the number 901, as it had registered the number themselves for the designation of car models. They had used 301, 401, 402, 203, and so on. Under French trademark regulations, Peugeot won the exclusive rights to use the style. It's basically, basically it was like a nomenclature. Word. Exactly. Like, hey, eventually we're going to get to 904 and we need to be able to use that or something. Um, yeah. the, the 904 was allowed to keep its name. Um, I think they like internally called it the 904, like the chassis Yeah, because or that was, I mean, it was a race car. They did sell a few street versions, yeah. but... Yeah, that probably the wasn't 901 itself disappeared by the time customers got their hands on the cars, but the number would still be stamped on part numbers. Other problems plagued the 911. Right. Uh, this is, goes on and on about why the 911 was kind of a piece of shit at the time. Um, other problems plagued the 911. Four and a half inch <laughs> tires mixed with dangerous handling characteristics for the casual driver. Understeer led to lift oversteer. Early prototypes yep. had the mindful oversight of the engineers. Handling was said to be acceptable. Once the cars reached the assembly line, the variances increased, and the strict tolerances laid out by the engineers could not be maintained. Huh. A twitchy vehicle that tended to oversteer would not sell well in an American market used to meandering beasts. <laughs> Someone suggested weight be added to the front of the chassis to offset the rear bias. Porsche installed 11-kilogram weights in the overriders in the front of the car. Helmut Bott, head of chassis designation, claimed he could tell the difference, but it's doubtful the average driver could. Huh. So the thing went through like quite a bit of... like. 
refine you know, what you have to. It's interesting that in its original conception, it probably was really good, but they just couldn't meet those tolerances in the actual manufacturing no, process. No, th- I mean, they were just, the engineers were demanding this and getting right, that. exactly. Um, despite its shortcomings and mixed initial reviews, it was still the best Porsche ever built. For the consumer, the 911 exceeded the 356 in every way. The 356 mm-hmm. continued to roll off the assembly line, but it was clear the writing was on the wall. Its time had passed. It reached American shores to wide acclaim from automotive journalists. No contest. This is the Porsche to end all Porsches, or rather, to start a whole new generation of Porsches. The 911 is a superior car to the 356 in every respect. The stuff legends are made of. And this was written by Car and Driver uh, way back when it came, like, 1965, like 64, 65, 65, 66. Um, so, I mean, he was right, really. That was, that was more writing on the wall there. That was the stuff yeah. that legends were made of. Um, they, they thought it was a better car, but it wasn't without its fault. In the eyes of journalists, it was loud. At higher speeds, they maintained it was difficult to hear passengers or listen to the radio above 140 kilometers. Handling reviews were mixed, and there was even a two-second gap in a 0-60 time from two staple publications. So two different cars had a two-second gap in a 0-60 wow. time. But you got to keep in mind the 0-60 time was probably like 11 seconds or something, right? Right. So, I mean, We're talking a bigger, yeah. bigger number here. Yeah, yeah. Um, Porsche was still making changes to the handling characteristics of the car at the beginning of the model run, which may have accounted for some of the mixed reviews of the era. The consensus from the Americans was that the car had excellent performance but could use more refinement and comfort. When you look at the American market at the time, it's doubtful Porsche could have done anything to improve the opinion of the few detractors without ruining the dynamics of the car entirely. Right. So they just pretty much just just went for it. So Yeah, well, when the average consumer in America was driving these land barges at the time, it's like you're not going to make a nimble little sports car feel like that. Right. So, yeah. well, that's kind of like a bonus uh, quick shift we got from you. Do you want more? No. no let's, let's, let's cut, cut it, it off it. there. I can read this whole thing to somebody sometime. I, I'm, well, we'll do a quick shift. I'll just read this. Right, I think it'll be, be cool. good. It's a little long. <laughs> it'll be a little <laughs> bit of a long quick shift. Well, thanks for tuning in, guys. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, we appreciate you. And uh, we know that, you know, there's there's a lot of what? No, I'm, I'm, I'm curious where you're going with this. What do we know? I was just going to say that there's a lot of time. There, or there's not very much time in the day. Right. So we're all busy. We're all doing things. And the fact that you guys take the time out to listen to us, it really does, it really does touch me. And, uh, and I really appreciate it. And, it. and it warms my heart knowing that you guys are out there listening to me pretend I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so that's, that's really great. I think that was like the most humble I've ever heard Chris be. I'm very humble. Look what are you talking about? Yeah. I can be, always be right and be humble at the same time. <laughs> and that's an oxymoron. <laughs> <laughs> You're a moron. <laughs> All right. We'll see you later, guys. Thanks for tuning in. Take and uh, we'll see you on Monday.